Welcome to the Leadership Zone. I'm your host, Sheila Walsh, Leadership Development Specialist, Coach and Researcher. Okay, welcome. So today we're speaking to Dr. Kimberly Hale on the Leadership Zone about the work that she does. A couple of interesting things that when I was speaking to Dr. Kimberly, I was really interested in bringing her on to speak about. But before I jump into the content that I want to discuss, I think it'd be really great, uh, Dr. Kimberly, if you'd introduce yourself and give us a little background to you so that listeners can kind of get a sense of your context and where you're coming from. Great. Thank you so much for having me today. So I am a faculty member at Oklahoma State University. I teach American Sign Language English Interpretation, and I'm also a faculty success coach. Primarily, I work with faculty members who are going through some sort of change or trying to drive direction in their careers. So that's mostly what I do. That's brilliant. Thank you. It's really interesting, I think, because doing two pieces, like you have a dual role, and I think that that lends to nuances and insights that you can't always get when you when you just have one role. For any of the listeners, it's important to know the reason I've asked Dr. Kimberly to come in and speak today with me is a couple of things. We had a conversation and we're weirdly aligned for people who are just randomly met through a couple of connections. And one of the interesting pieces that Dr. Kimberly works on is how faculty members can manage working within their institution and being effective with all of the the realities of the systemic things that occur. And one of the things that just struck me really strongly was that most faculty who I've done any development work with or we do any inclusion interventions usually come to a point where they say right now I understand how I can be more inclusive how am I going to do this and be impactful and successful when actually the reason that I've been impactful and successful was based on maybe not knowing these skills or not using these these insights and that's what made me think about talking to you today Dr Kimberly is to talk to you a little bit about that point in faculty journeys do you want to tell us a little bit, because I know you have a model as well, so do you want to say a little bit about that point first and then and then we see where that brings us? Yes, certainly. So I work in interpreter education, but my doctoral degree is actually in higher education policy and leadership development. So in that area, I study working and learning in higher education, and my model is the faculty acculturation model, which primarily focuses on how new faculty and their intersectional identities enter the employment context of a specific institution and department, and then they're socialized through formal processes of policies and programs, but then the real socialization happens when they're interacting with other faculty within their departments to develop what the expectations are, their perceptions of what's required to succeed in the institution. And when we were talking, I was thinking, right, so those people who are doing the socialization, once they've been through programs like yours, they may be trying to adjust the culture of the institution, which is, as you know, for any large institution, is not always an easy endeavor. So when faculty hit that point, I think it's also common after achieving tenure, for example. So when you first enter, and then once you've achieved tenure, and then other kinds of major life shifts cause you to rethink, where am I? What's my position in this institution? How do I want to move forward either within the institution or on some other path? And when you're saying that it's bringing to mind, there was, um, I was speaking to someone who's quite senior in a university. And one of the challenges that they were describing was that they believed that as they got into like tenure, as they got into senior positions, that they would be able to 
evoke the change that they believed in and was supporting and that they were only playing by the rules until they could do something differently. And now that they could do something differently, they ended up feeling really stuck because actually that role requires that they fulfill certain obligations for the university. And it was the first time that they realised that they had been playing by a set of rules with the belief that they would stop at some point unconsciously. They get there. And now there, there's a question over who am I in this role when I my intention was on some level I would right the wrongs in this role. But actually, this role requires that I maintain it, because if I don't, things may go wrong from a wider university perspective. And so I'm wondering, when you're working with faculty, are you finding that any of those major life moments, whether it's personal or professional, can have them reevaluating their relationship with the university and the work that they're doing? Mm-hmm. Yes, I've experienced that myself in my own journey being coached, as well as when I coach others. But often when you get to that point and you realize these are my values, these are the things I want to enact in my life, and my calendar is not allowing me, you feel like your calendar is not allowing you time to do those things that you want to do. And sometimes that results in a shift in position, a shift within that institution and positions, maybe going into higher administration to feel like you can make some of those changes. Other times it's shifting to a different type of institution that will allow you to do more work that aligns with what you want. And other times it does result in leaving the institution and providing support to faculty in in other ways. Mm. It's interesting because I I kind of like we joke in, in leadership work about you're hired to help improve the leaders in an organization. And actually, usually when you do an intervention, you'll have a percentage of those leaders leave. But we never we don't obviously advertise that or sell that because that might not be, you know, bought very frequently. But there is something about if you move people through any process of change that they're going to have new expectations. And we saw that during COVID and, and the pandemic, we saw the people's relationship with work changed. And over a lifetime of being a faculty member or aiming for tenure, you're going to have multiple things that change what's important to you. You have used the word coaching. And because I know that in academic settings, the word is used coaching, but what they really are doing is mentoring or directing. So Mm -hmm. I'd like you for the listeners to define how you're using that term in terms of working with faculty, because I I think it's important to know that that term can be used and, and not mean what you mean it to mean. So it'd be helpful if you kind of describe what that is to you when you're working with faculty. Yes, that is a really good point is that often people use that word coaching to mean a lot of different things. So when I use the word, I'm using it to mean partner with faculty or whoever the client is in their journey to find their next path. So unlike a mentor or who might be providing advice and telling you what to do, or a supervisor who's coaching you, which means they're giving you corrective action for things that they didn't want to see. In my terms of coaching, I work with people to set their agenda. Where do they want to go? What are their intentions? And then I ask them powerful, deep probing questions to help them think about their situation in new ways, and then help provide some accountability and support to implement whatever the ideas they came up with. So it's not a place of judgment or evaluation or advice giving or telling you what to do. It's more of a place of holding space to allow you to explore the areas that you want. And to learn more about that type of coaching, there's International Coaching Federation. 
getting my training through an accredited program through that organization. So that's kind of the approach we take to coaching is more of a partnership and supporting people in their journey and where they are. That's brilliant. And it's it's interesting when you were saying that what I was thinking about was how a lot of faculty some of them may have thought of nothing else but going through that process to becoming faculty. Others, it may have been like a deep-seated want and very rarely, but occasionally it happens upon people, you know. But one of the things I found, and I'm, I'm wondering if you've noticed this, is that sometimes the definition of success for faculty members is defined by the most senior position you can get within your field within that university or possibly within the field wider if there's, you know, particular chair levels. But that with coaching, you can start to think about what is successful for me as a faculty member or as a person. And I wonder if you see that that's a challenge that, you know, that the faculty you're working with may have as well, is that there's a linear idea around success because of how it's developed. And then that through coaching, because you're not directing them, because you're helping them explore something, that they may come up with other definitions and other ideas about what they want in their lives and in their work. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really common with people I work with that they, especially when they're on the tenure track and there are expectations and I know I have to meet those, you start to think that that's what you value. But then when you work with the coach, often you realize those external things or specific job titles are not what's really valuable to you as a person. So just as an example, I was working at Eastern Kentucky University for 15 years, and I was a tenured associate professor there, getting ready to apply for full professor. And just in that type of institution, it was, it's more of a teaching focused institution. And I just didn't have the flexibility that I felt I needed to pursue my mission of doing research about higher education and how faculty fit within the system. And I wanted to provide more support to faculty in doing that as well as continue to provide excellent interpreter education. So through coaching actually is how I decided, okay, the standard would say apply for full professor and stay in this job until I retire. But instead, I took a different position in another state because it allowed me to act on the mission and my values in a way that I wasn't able to in the previous institution in that specific position. So I think similar things happen. I'm not saying I coach people to get new jobs because I don't, but if someone is looking at how they can better reflect their values in their work and what's important to them, sometimes that is a different job. Sometimes it's within the same institution, but definitely we're looking at helping people decide what is important to them. Because at the end of the day, if they're doing work that doesn't fulfill them, then that's going to lead to burnout and which will impact their work at work as well as their home lives. Mm. And it's really funny, the episode, the guest episode before this episode was with somebody, Orla Dempsey, who did some research in Ireland just with school teachers about how they're experiencing leadership because there's a, a few changes in our system. Over 200 participants And this was just, Orla went out and said, I have questions that need answering and just took the courage to ask the questions. And there was over 80% of respondents knew somebody who had burnt out or, and also left the profession over it. And we were talking a little bit, and even on my reflection about it, about if you were trying to deliver an outcome. So for instance, in this case, it was students. In your case, it's it's very likely to be students and you're ignoring the well-being of the people delivering it. And that includes, you know, are they aligned? Are they connected? All of those things you're not setting up the best outcome for the 
for the students, even though you might be ticking the boxes that you are. If the well-being of the people delivering or the connection the people delivering this learning have to themselves and the work is distorted or harmed or, you know, not nourishing in some way, that's going to play into how your students learn and how they experience your classes and then what they think about the topic and what they think about themselves. So what I really love is that your work is taking care of and focusing on often the middle person who is directly responsible for delivering outcomes, but isn't always understood, not just by the system, but sometimes by by ourselves, because Mm -hmm. without that, it can be really hard to make empowered decisions. You're often just defaulting. And I, I think that that's a really powerful thing to consider, because I know that whenever I'm working with faculty, I've yet to work with faculty who don't honestly have the best intentions. That doesn't mean they have the best practices, but the best intentions. And usually there's very valid reasons why stuff is more difficult or or they're, you know, less engaged or they're burnt out or, you know. But we do seem to when it comes to faculty and it comes to universities and it comes to third level education, we seem to not take care of faculty. And and the same for teachers, at least in primary and second level. Mm-hmm. Something about education is really interesting. We seem to not take care of the deliverers, for want of a better word, mm-hmm. in the way that if you were in any other industry, we would have a whole intervention like employee wellness and, and you know, employee engagement interventions. And there's something that in education, we seem to not be doing that um, globally, mm-hmm. and at least in, you know, English speaking countries, first language, we seem to not be doing that as well as other like industries do within the same Mm -hmm. geographical kind of experience. Do you have any thoughts around that? Mm -hmm. So I think this really came up a lot and really was at the forefront during the COVID pandemic when administrators were saying, help your students in any way possible. If they need to miss class, then you need to record it and meet with them and give it another way. And the faculty are saying, but who's taking care of us? Like we need this support as well. Do extra support to allow your students with children and caretaking responsibilities to have some flexibility. And we say, where's the flexibility for us as faculty? So I think all of those things are systemic and have been going on for a long time. And I think the pandemic really brought a lot of faculty to say, okay, to really recognize we need to be acknowledged and supported as well. And sometimes institutions, they're, I think you're right. In education, it seems like they're not always set up to support the givers, the people who are doing the frontline, the frontline work of helping students gain information and access and so forth. It's it's really focused on the students and their experience and less on the faculty and their experience. I think that's an important part of the work that you do in inclusive leadership is helping those leaders realize that the faculty are an essential part of the process and having them feel connected and included and like they are important is really going to help them be able to provide the best for students in the classroom and beyond. Mm. And I I think that's where this conversation kind of originated was I was saying that there is we do this process and then they get to a point and they say, right, actually, to some degree, my my commitment to doing things differently is really high. But it means that I'm going to have a different experience now as a faculty member because I am now going to be doing particular things that may not always be valued, um, but Mm -hmm. be important for for inclusion and. I suppose there's a point and actually even in traditional leadership development 
there is a point where I really think faculty to implement any of these systemic changes really need that individual support and not just support as in from a caretaking point of view. I mean support to think beyond the boundaries of their experience, to to bounce ideas off, to see themselves as bigger than just the role that they currently hold and to redefine success. Because I think without that, what happens is we just give them more to do. And this Mm -hmm. is what I'm noticing that here's more you need to do. But actually, you have the same amount of days that you're already doing more than you can and the same amount of hours, but you're actually doing more than that. But now we need you to do a little bit extra. And it's always the number one pushback in any systemic development that I do in a university is where am I getting the time for this? Now, after a little bit, when we get a piece of work, they realize it can save them time because like that's a part of doing these things well is understanding how they can make our lives better and our work better and our practice better. But in, initially, it feels and sounds like a lot of extra work. And then they come to this new place with themselves and then they say, OK, how do I do this part now? And I guess that's the part where you specialise in not not directing and not defining, but actually exploring and getting curious and opening up the opportunities, if I understand mm-hmm. you correctly. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And, and helping them figure out in what ways, spaces and places they can implement those things that are important to them. So just as one example, frequently in universities and lower level courses, there are several sections being taught by different faculty and the syllabus is expected to be uniform across all of those sections. Even though as individual faculty members, I may have attendance policies that are very liberal to allow students to be human and other faculty would prefer to have, please bring me a doctor's note when you are gonna be absent for any reason and you can't retake a quiz if it was in class that day or you know whatever their policies are. So that's one example where a faculty member may have, depending on their position, less ability to impact change on that specific syllabus, but they can still impact change in their class with their students in other ways and potentially how they serve on committees and continuing to share information with the people who develop that standard syllabus so that potentially there's some changes. Similarly to when people use alternative grading methods and if a department is not all on board, but a faculty member has done development and found this, then there's some tension there on, especially for junior faculty, but also for tenured faculty as well. But how much leeway do I have before someone's going to come down on me because I'm not following the standard and expected way of doing things? So I think part of it is what is important and then where can you leverage that in ways that still feel comfortable, sometimes stretching your safety, um, Mm. your feeling of safety, and sometimes not. Sometimes saying, I need like, I need stability and safety and I'm just going to do it in ways that feel really comfortable to me right now. And maybe someone will grow out of that in the future and maybe they won't. They'll just say, at work, I'm going to do this. And to the best of my ability, but then in other parts of my life is where I'm really going to leverage this. So some faculty end up making those decisions as well. Mm. And I love that you're pointing to that discernment that actually, and I think this is really important. Sometimes when you're doing development, people can presume that they should do certain things. You know, people will be like, I should always do this. And I'm like, "Mm, you might need to decide if it's worth that because every action, even if it's for the best intention has a consequence. And it's reasonable to take that into account when you make decisions, even if you're going for coaching and you're trying to like be your best self, sometimes you're going to need to say, this doesn't have the return on investment of this effort. This isn't gonna have the impact that I want it to have. You know, 
that I can choose not to do something, but at least it's a choice rather than an automatic. And I, I think that that's quite empowering in and of itself, really, mm-hmm. is thinking about it that way. So would you mind yeah. if I ask you a couple of questions before we oh. finish the call? Okay. That'd be super. So the first question is just, do you have an example that comes to mind about a great leader? And if so, why would you call them a great leader? Mm-hmm. So this is a person in the business space. Her name is Kathy Mazag. She's actually one of the coaches that I've used in the past for myself. Um, but what I really like about her as a leader in her business and in the community of people that she serves is she emphasizes doing work that is most aligned with your skills and abilities, your superpowers, your zone of genius, your highest contribution. There are lots of different words for it, but she really focuses and helps us think about what is the best that I can provide? Where is it the best use of my skills, knowledge, service, ability, as opposed to, well, of course, your junior faculty, you should teach this lower level intro course, but maybe my highest ability is in a different a different course or a different way of doing things. So that's what I really like about her leadership is focusing, helping people think and focus on what's this individual specific area of genius where we can really leverage that in the best way possible instead of having them do work that they can do, but it's maybe not their best area to work in. Mm, I really love that. And I, I think really great leaders do that. I love that example. So is there any pet peeve you'd want to share with us about either leadership or the workplace that you're like, oh, this is one of my pet peeves? (laughs) So in my life as a person, I am the person people come to when they're like, is there a policy on this? Do we have a policy? So I know where the policies are. I I know where they are. So um, I would say a pet peeve of mine is when there is a policy and someone's like, oh, but we don't really have to do that. And I'm like, but, but it's a policy. So it is a pet peeve. I feel like there are times that you say, okay, well, let's maybe look at this policy and see if it's serving as in the best way. But, you know, sometimes policies represent ethical practice. And so when it's those instances, I call it a bent moral compass. So when people are trying to get around the ethical practice of a policy, that's when I like, um, no, we need ethical leaders, people who have a true north and are going that way. We may disagree about how to go about something or the best strategies, but as long as you're on true north of ethical practice, then I can get behind that. But if not, I'm not behind that. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. I, I see policies as like the stepping stones to achieving what we're trying to achieve. And I know that a lot of organizations write policies for the sake of it so that they aren't liable and that the individual Mm -hmm. staff member can be liable but I think if you bring policies to life and you use them you can allow the diversity of people and their decisions and their values because you're using the policy to guide how it can be implemented and Mm -hmm. yeah I think it's really important now bad policies need updating and they need reviewing and and policies that people don't use need reviewing but I'm always conscious when somebody tries to find a workaround to Mm -hmm. a policy that serves its purpose I'm like no you're not like you're pushing something forward without the reasonable considerations, you know? Mm-hmm. So I get that. And in universities, there's so many policies for everything, but it's just so many policies. Whenever I'm trying to weave through a policy, there's sometimes policies about the policies. Yes. But I think that I always try to remember that the reason for them is to ensure that any one of us can do something meaningful in alignment with the university. And I think mm-hmm. that's really important. Not that they're annoying and we have to read them and figure them out and make decisions, but 
they're actually there to give you the boundaries of how the organization stands over the work you do so i really i really like that and i'm sure that'll be really odd to many listeners going you like the policies like i do <laughs> and, and at the same time ironically i actually especially around inclusion people will be like oh we need to write a policy i'm like no 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 no. we write principles we write practice principles we write codes of conduct we don't write policies for this because you don't police it what you know mm-hmm. you actually have to facilitate it but there are other things that do need policies because they do need to be policed for legislative reasons or for just you know to ensure nobody can take advantage like I don't mm-hmm. know if you're a faculty member to a student you can't set up a business with them for instance because right you know <laughs> like there are ones that protect people for good reasons yeah so I like policies but I I also think we need to think outside of always thinking of policy is the solution as well do you have a piece of advice that you'd leave our listeners with any piece of advice that just feels really strong after our conversation for you? Mm-hmm. I think if you're up against one of those situations where you are a little unsure on how to move forward, find someone to talk to about that. It could be a coach, but it could also just be a close friend. I recommend someone that has some knowledge of higher education because people outside of higher education don't always understand what we do. But I think finding someone that you can just talk through those situations to help you think more how and where you can leverage that new thinking and the new value system or your old value system that you're just becoming more aware of and aligned with, then, you know, as you mentioned, which places are going to give you the return on investment. So I think finding someone to talk about that sooner rather than later, right? Like I've I've rarely had someone say, I'm so glad I waited six months after I knew about you to do coaching or whatever. So I would say, you know, talk to people when you first start having thoughts of, huh, this is, this is not really feeling aligned or comfortable. Start there as opposed to, you know, years later when you're feeling more burnt out or stressed by the situation and feeling like you're not able to make a contribution that aligns with who you are. Mm, I think that's really good. I, yeah, I've never heard anyone say, I'm so glad I waited to, that I carried this for an extra, you know, year, two years. The other thing is when you're saying that I'm thinking about often in universities, people go to each other for like mentoring and advice. And mm-hmm. sometimes in my experience, people haven't always realized the investment the person giving the advice has in the decision for whatever reason Mm -hmm. they want to write papers with you in the future so they don't want you going or you're easier to manage or they're going to try and move and they want someone to you know act up for a period of time I think the unbiased piece with an understanding of education is really important Mm -hmm. because even really well-intentioned mentors and supervisors and colleagues are going to have an investment in something, whether it's that you stay in the organization because they like you or there's, you know, future possibilities. And so unlike all of the other academic processes where supervisors and and tenured people and experienced people are really valuable, I think when it comes to this, I would lean even more heavily on that coaching, unbiased, uninvested person, because unfortunately we all have motives. So I, I think even more so in, in an organization and in a university where you do rely on people to, you know, to understand and to learn and to move through. I think this is one of the times you need to go outside of that network of people to find someone unbiased to work mm-hmm. with you on it. Because also what are they valuing and you know, how have they made it work? It reminds me of like when I hear women give other women advice, like women coaches who haven't read the research and they say things like, just be confident. And I'm like, that's 
that's terrible advice but that's the advice they're using personally so then they like mm -hmm. share it with someone else and I'm like but actually the research that's not a good idea like that's not very well informed but because it, mm -hmm. they're doing it and believe it's working for them they pass it on and I think sometimes we get the worst advice from the best meaning people mm -hmm. whereas at least with coaching it, it's about exploring something rather than being directed yes and so I have an example one time a faculty member I was like how do you get your research done in this institution with the high teaching load and he said oh well I do all of my research and writing in the summer I was like it must be nice to have a wife to take care of your kids <laughs> because in the summer I'm taking care of my kids yes right right <laughs> so right that advice doesn't always help but so I recently ran a study on first year faculty and we had group coaching sessions. And one thing that came up in those sessions throughout the entire academic year that I followed them is they really appreciated this separate space from their institution to ask questions and acknowledge what they were feeling and be heard for what they were feeling and experiencing that was separate from the people who are going to evaluate them in the future yes. and so forth. And you're right. So many people give well-intentioned advice and information but they do have some stake in your decision and what you do. And if you get a really good friend, they're going to support you whatever way that goes. But so finding someone outside your institution, but also coaching is an excellent option because we are very invested in you and helping you succeed, whatever that looks like for you. But we're not invested in your specific decision. We have no stake in the game. We're just there to support you. So it is a really effective way to get a perspective and help you think outside of just your confines of how you have been considering situations. Because when I ask a question, it's full of curiosity and not with an ulterior motive of, well, mm. you should do this, because that's what I'm asking you. I'm really asking you the question to, well, what do you think about that? And and I find that even when people, sometimes they think, oh, did I answer your question in coaching? It's okay if you didn't answer the question. The point is to spark your thinking. And as long as you're thinking and, and working through the situations, it's, it's helpful and useful. But yeah, coaches don't have an agenda in terms of where we think you should go. We mm -hmm. just ask the questions with curiosity and hold the space for you to figure out where that needs to be. Mm -hmm. I think that's brilliant. And the piece about separate to the institution, I think what's really interesting is I do some group work and then work privately with people in the group. And there's things they say in the group, even over a number of months where they get close. And then there's things they say to me privately in the coaching. And they might all be saying this to me in the coaching, but nobody is saying it in the room because they're right as well. The people in this room are going to have an impact on their future career. And mm -hmm. until they know that they also see it this way, that, you know, there's an uncertainty. So one of the things I find astounding when I work with a group of faculty is that at the end, when I'm doing the coaching with them, they may all be telling me the same thing and nobody said it in the room. And, mm -hmm. and it's because they need the safety that this won't have an implication on their brand as a professional, on their academic research, on their funding, on their promotional opportunities, on how their peers see them. And yet it could be a shared experience, like very common experience. So I, I think that separate part is really important as well as somebody with the skills, because even really well-intentioned friends, that is not the same skills as a coach. And we, we can't pretend that coaching is one thing or that everybody's the same. But I think like you're pointing to, if you're going to go to a faculty coach, make sure that it's a coach who's holding the position you're holding, Kimberly, and isn't unconsciously holding up as successful. 
or unconsciously holding a kind of belief about what you should do they're actually you know deep in their practice of coaching yeah so thank you thank you for joining us hopefully you'll come back again and i will put all the links to you below in the show notes so that everybody can uh, follow up with you directly and and pop over to your website and things like that great i really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today it was really enjoyable thank you excellent well thank you very much i really appreciate it thank you Thank you for listening to The Leadership Zone. We can continue this conversation over on Twitter and my Twitter handle is at Sheila Walsh one or at LinkedIn, you'll find me under Sheila Walsh. To book a free consultation to discuss your leadership needs or the leadership development needs of your organization, simply visit my website, www.sheilawalsh.com and book a free leadership consultation. I look forward to hearing from you.